Okay, so we are in John chapter 3. And remember, we're going through the chronological life of Jesus. And in John chapter 3, it says in verse 17, For God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged, but he who... He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifest as having been wrought in God. So, remember that the Bible makes it very clear that it's very easy to have eternal life, and it's believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. And sometimes we want to make it much harder than it really is. Now, there are other aspects of service to Him, but He says it right here that it's it's this believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. So, what does it mean to believe on the Lord Jesus? It's clarified for us in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It says that of first importance, that we must believe that He lived, that He died, and that He rose from the dead. This is what it means to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that He lived, the Son of God lived on this earth, that He died on the cross, and that He rose again from the dead. And, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it, it, it fleshes this out a little bit for us. Then he says that, that uh, um, in verse 19, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. So this isn't, it doesn't say men out there. This is men, people. People love the darkness rather than the light. So inherent within my heart is this love for that which is evil. And the scriptures say that, we can, that, that people love darkness rather than light. This is inherent within people, that we love darkness rather than the light. It says, for everyone who does evil hates the light. So, when, when we have this thought of doing something evil to somebody, or doing something hurtful, the scriptures say that we are, in, in, in that time, we hate the light. And then it, it goes on to contrast that. It says, and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light. So in other words, when we practice the truth, when we practice good things, I've said it before, C.S. Lewis puts it this way. When you do good acts, it draws you closer to God. When you do bad acts, it draws you away from God. So in other words, the example he uses, he says that, that because a lot of his writings were, were written around the, the period of World War II, and shortly after that, you see many World War II analogies in what he was writing. But he said, for example, the Nazis hated the Jews, so what they did is they started calling them names and, and, and throwing stones through their, their, their store windows. And rather than to pacify the hatred, rather than to satisfy the hatred, it made them hate them more. And so they took the Jews and they corralled them and they put them into these slum areas. 
and, and they couldn't leave these certain areas. And you would think that, okay, now this has satisfied their hatred. But no, it wasn't until then they put them in the concentration camps so that they were away from the cities. Okay, now this should satisfy the hatred. Now they'll be done with it. No, it caused them to have a mass and, and uh, extermination. And so that they would wipe out the Jews and you would think that, okay, now the hatred has been satisfied. No, it caused them to hate them even more. In the same way that when we do good to someone, it makes us love them more. So if you have trouble liking someone, that they're just, you know, one of those people that just does stuff that irritates you, find out what that person likes and extend that good act to them. Do they like Starbucks? Find out exactly what they like and bring them a cup of Starbucks. I have seen this work multiple times with people. One young lady came up to me and she says, you know, my boss is always upset with me and she doesn't like me. And, and I said, what is your boss like? She said, what do you mean? With I said, does she like coffee? Oh, yeah, she comes in every morning with a, one of the big things at Starbucks. I said, okay, find out what she likes and you bring it to her. And you bring her a cup of that when you come in. And she did. And she said that her boss was so surprised. And it opened up a whole relationship. She would periodically bring this woman Starbucks, and they, then this woman started taking her out to lunch. And, and, and this whole relationship started to change. When someone really irritates you, if you do to them a good act, it will cause you to like them more. Let alone what they may think of you in return, it will cause you to like them more. When you move toward truth, when you do that which is right, it moves you to the light of God. This is what the Scriptures tell us to do. This is, you know, this is really a secret. It's really a treasure. Most people don't know how to win, those, win favor of those who dislike them. Most people just, well, if he doesn't like me, I don't like him. And, and, it, and there's, there's all these rifts that happen in life. And you've only experienced a little bit of this. But what happens is lives are full of baggage. Of years and years of this, this is why after decades you can look at people and you're like, you know, it's only been 20 years, but it looks like it's been 80. I mean, the way you look. And, and uh, uh, when you carry stuff, it'll just wipe you out. And, and I got a call just yesterday from a guy, and uh, he was saying, he said, Jim, everybody likes you. Now, that's not entirely true. But this was his perspective. He says, everybody I talk to likes you. Now, Again, I know that not to be true, but this is at least the impression of some. I was visiting once a, a former student of mine. He teaches at Texas A&M, and he was asking me for advice on how to get along with some of his colleagues. He says, it's easy for you. Everybody likes you. And, and, and again, so this is at least the impression, but what I do is I work hard to obey these scriptures, that if somebody has something against me or somebody's irritating to me, I'll invite them to lunch. And, it, and it, it's not that hard of a thing to do for me because I invite them to the, the faculty club on campus. So, so it's, 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 it's an easy thing for me to be able to do. And, you know, you just sit there and you do this and all of a sudden you start to win them over if somebody's upset with you. One guy once attacked me in a meeting, just attacked me. And uh, uh, there was this public forum and, and uh, we were supposed to talk about religion on campus. And persecution on campus, persecution of religion. And so they invited me and they invited another professor who, who uh, uh, teaches Christianity on campus and they invited a Muslim professor. 
And uh, so my, I stood up, they invited me to speak first, and I said, there is no persecution. I said, whatever I have experienced is kindergarten. Compared to what my, my fellow believers around the world go through, how they get their arms cut off, how they get hung, how they get killed for, for their witness, there is no persecution on campus. Well, then the Christian professor stands up there and says, uh, uh, it, is, it is terribly disheartening what Jim Tour does on this campus. Actually, he didn't say Jim Tour, but what some professors do on this campus. And he looked back at me, putting ads in the paper about Jesus, using their positions to push upon other people. And so this whole talk was what Jim Tour does. Well, then the Muslim professor is looking over at me. He gets up and he says, Jim Tour's never done anything to bother me. So the Muslim guy and I were, were, were conjoined against this, this Christian professor. So what I did is I invited the guy to lunch because he said I had violated university policy with my actions. And I said, when you come to lunch, bring me a copy of the policy because I can't find it. And so when he came to lunch, I said, did you bring a copy of the policy? He says, well, I think it's a policy in European universities, probably not here. I said, well, come on, you can't hold me responsible for something. So anyway, but we, came, we became really good friends after that lunch. You just took one lunch together, and we became good friends. This is what it says. If you practice the truth, it moves you toward the light. Men don't like the light. People don't like the light because it exposes them why? Because it says, because their deeds are evil, and they don't like to be exposed. That's why I think it, it's so easy to say, you know, the force out there. But as soon as you mention God, and specifically Jesus Christ in the Bible, now you hold people up to this, and they don't like it. Okay, you can say, Godspeed. You know, that's about as religious as you should get. <laughs> But if you go beyond that, if you say, God bless you, whoa, 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 that's, that's going too far. God's speed is okay, but not God bless you. And, and then if you should mention Jesus Christ in the Bible, why? Because this is like a spotlight is just put on you that, that holds you accountable now for your actions because there's a, a, a set definition here of right and wrong. Okay, let's read on. Verse 22 of John chapter 3. And after these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John also was baptizing in Anon, near Salim, because there was much water there, and the people were coming and were being baptized, for John had not, not yet been thrown into prison. Therefore there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all, all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it's been given to him from heaven. From heaven. You yourselves are witnesses that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because, the bri because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is from the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. And he who comes from heaven is above all. Okay, so... It says in verse 22 that Jesus and the disciples came into the land and, and they were baptizing and he was spending time with them. 
And then it later on clarifies that Jesus himself wasn't baptizing. This is, this is in, in chapter 4, verse 2. Although Jesus himself was not baptizing, his disciples were. So Jesus himself wasn't baptizing, but his disciples were. And then it says John was also baptizing. But remember what happened, and we discussed this uh, uh, last time, that, that uh, uh, the water at the end of this season, so uh, right about now, the, the amount of water in Israel goes way down because they, they have a rainy season which starts in in the wintertime. And so the, the water gets less and less. And so he had to move up the Jordan River because there was water, but it wasn't sufficient for baptizing and dunking them under. So he went up right by the mouth of where it comes out of the Sea of Galilee of Gennesaret, and he was baptizing there. And it says in verse 24, John had not yet been thrown in, the, in prison. Now, he's about to be, but he, not, not yet. And then verse 25, it says, uh, let me just mention in verse 22, it says, Jesus, he was spending time with them in baptism. Remember, he had only selected a few of his disciples at this point. So, so I, I think it's five disciples at this point. So he, he hadn't chosen, uh, the rest of the selections are going to come later. So, the disciples that he had, he was spending time with them, and they were baptizing. And in verse 25, it says, There arose a discussion on the part of John's disciple with a Jew about purification. Now, I don't quite understand this, because it arose a discussion, John's disciples with a Jew. Now, John's disciples were all Jews. John was a Jew. Jesus was a Jew. All of Jesus' disciples were Jews. There were no Gentiles in the church. There were no Gentiles in the body of Christ. That didn't come until Acts chapter 8. The first Gentiles in Acts chapter 9 actually came in. The first word to Peter about it was in Acts chapter 8. The first Gentiles came in in Acts chapter 9, which was many years after this. Uh, so, uh, uh, but they mention, in other words, when they saying that, uh, a Jew about purification, I'm not quite sure what it means, but maybe about someone who wasn't a follower of John. But then in verse 26, And they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. So now Jesus, Jesus' team was baptizing now more people than John's team. John had a baptism that spoke and said, He whom I testify, this is the Son of God. When you see that, you will accept him. People say, yes, we will accept him. And that's why all of John's disciples when he pointed Jesus out, started following Jesus and recognized that Jesus was, was uh, the Son of God. Now, John is baptizing more people. So there's another group with John that haven't seen Jesus, but John had already testified of him. We know that Jesus' group was baptizing more than John's group because in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Therefore, when the Lord knew, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, and then it goes on. So in other words... Jesus' group was now baptizing more disciples than John's group, and John's disciples start getting a little concerned about this. That happens. That really happens. So say you have a church, and, and, and uh, uh, another church opens next door. I mean, you get really concerned when everybody starts going next door. So John, look at John's heart in this thing. So they come, and they, they're real concerned about this, and they start sharing this with John. And John says in verse 27, a man can receive nothing unless it's been given to him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. 
so this joy of mine has been made full. He must decrease, but I must increase. Okay, so this picture of the bride, the bridegroom, and the friend of the bridegroom is carried out throughout the New Testament. Jesus picks up the same picture. The, the, the bridegroom is always Jesus. The bride is the church. The bride is the church. The bridegroom is Jesus. The friend of the bridegroom are the Old Testament saints. John was one of the Old Testament saints. You say, no, we're reading in the New Testament. No, the church had not yet formed. John was the last of the Old Testament type prophets. Look at what John says. He says that, that uh, I am rejoicing because, he, sa- he says, the, the, the friends of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. John the Baptist is saying, I'm not concerned about this at all. I'm happy about this. And he says, so this joy of mine has been made full. How many people can say that? How many people can say, the joy in my life is fully satisfied? I'm telling you, there's not many. There's not many. I say that. There is nothing that I want in life that I can't already have. I mean, because my wants are small. I got, I got the wife that I want. I mean, she's tremendous. I've got four kids. I've got a home. I've got a job that I love. There's nothing that I would rather have. When you have fulfillment in Christ, it brings so much to your life. You think of what people want in life. Can you imagine reaching a point? Whatever I want, I've got. I've got it already. I've got it. John says, so, he says, says, uh, so this joy of mine has been made full. Boom. I am full. I am full, John says. Don't worry about me. Don't worry that he's baptizing more. He is from God. I mean, he has heard these things from God. This is the Messiah. Don't worry about me. This is what brings fullness in life. And then John says, he must, he must increase, but I must decrease. And you know what happens right after this? John gets thrown in prison, which we'll see. Right after this. He must increase, but I must decrease. This is a life poured out for Jesus. A life poured out for Jesus is a life fulfilled. This is a life fulfilled. Is a life poured out for Jesus. It brings such fulfillment. Um, you, you, what he does, and then he, then he, he finishes this chapter, he, he, and he just starts praising Jesus. In verse 31, He who comes from above is above all. He who is from the earth is uh, he who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. So you see, he's just exalting Jesus. He's telling his disciples, "That's the guy you ought to go be with. If I were you, I would go up there. I would go where he is." He has seen and heard of that. Uh, he what he has seen and heard of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set a seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Scriptures say that we have been given portions of the Spirit, spiritual gifts, according to the work that God has for us. And if we exercise those gifts, he gives us more. Jesus was the only one who has received the gifts of the Spirit without measure. Can you imagine an individual in whom is embodied all the gifts of the Spirit? 
I mean, this guy had to be amazing to have all the gifts of the Spirit embodied in him. And in, in Isaiah chapter 11, it talks about how he had this gift of wisdom, this gift of insight, this gift of encouragement, this gift of teaching. He goes through these gifts that Jesus has. Jesus has all of these gifts, all embodied in one man. He must be like, wow. How did he know that? How could he do that? Gifts of healing. Gifts of prophecy. I mean, Jesus had it all. There was, he was without measure in this. It wasn't measured out to him. Verse 35, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. This is really clear. You believe on the Son, you're going to have life, but if you don't obey, I mean, it's not going to be a happy time. But all He's doing is He's pouring out Himself. He says, I am ready to die. I'm ready to go. I've poured out my life. You know, the, the man... Probably the man who has most influenced my life in the Lord uh, is, is in the hospital right now in critical condition. When I was a, an undergraduate, he was about the age I am now, a couple years lo- younger than what I am now. And he was the pastor of the church, uh, uh, and he was also the evangelical chaplain at Syracuse University. And he had encouraged me uh, to move into one of his discipleship houses. He had these discipleship houses near campus where... Groups of guys lived, two houses where guys lived and, a, and another house where, where girls lived. And he owned these houses and you'd pay him like $25 a week in rent. Now, that was a long time ago. And the houses could be, they, they were kind of ratty anyway. They actually did, did have rats in them. Um, but, but in other words, but you move into this discipleship house and you get all this training and, and things. So my last two years of college, I moved into this house with nine other Christian guys. And, and uh, he had encouraged me to do this. And I remember he sat with me in the dining room of his home. And you say, well, where did we learn these things of inviting people in our home on Sunday afternoon? We learned it from this man, Dr. Koshi. Shireen and I learned it in this man's house. And in fact, Shireen and I met in this man's house after the after church uh, gathering. Uh, after a time at the church, we went to this pastor's home, and Shireen's dad introduced Shireen to me, because I had already known her dad, because uh, she came a little later than he did. And, and uh, uh, this happened in his home, and he had shared with me how it's good to be around other believers and what I would learn. So I spent my last two years of college in a discipleship program in this house, and God blessed me so much. Well, this man, I got an email earlier this week that he had gone into the hospital. So he's 79 now, almost 80, and he had been ministering in Illinois. So he lives in Syracuse, New York. Now, this is a guy who was so smart. He was, he was uh, they wanted him so badly with UPI News. He had graduated from the Newhouse School of uh, the Newhouse School of, of Communications at Syracuse University. Generally, a newscaster with UPI is not allowed to go back to their home country initially because they feel that there could be bias. But he said, no, I want to go back to India because he was going to, he wanted to witness to the intelligentsia of India and the political leaders while he was a news correspondent there. And just before he left Syracuse with his PhD, God spoke to him, I want you to stay here and to minister to students. Now, Syracuse is a very difficult place to live. It has uh, uh, 150 inches of snowfall, average snowfall a year. Uh, the year that I was there, one of the years I was there, it had 250 inches of snowfall. Uh, 60 inches is five feet, I think. So, you, you know, this is, 
when it has 150 inches of snowfall, it's a rough place to live. And, and uh, uh, because you have the Great Lakes, the, the lake effects, and so the, the, it's always, always uh, uh, overcast skies there, and it just dumps rain and snow. And he stayed there, and he persisted his entire life, his entire life. He said, until God releases me from this, I'm staying. And he poured out his life into young people. He poured out his life into me. Well, last night I got an email that his conditions become critical, that they put him on a respirator. He's in congestive heart failure. His kidneys are failing. And, and uh, uh, so, you know, you know, these are just and, and the, the signs of, of the man is passing. But here he was on ministry. And I think how gracious of God to be able to die in the saddle is to me an exciting thing. The man was out, he was in Illinois, witnessing and, and sharing and ministering to people when he got hit with this thing. And his, his wife and his son are, are going, going out. They're probably already there now. But you see that this is a life poured out. And the man never said, why don't I get this? Why don't I get that? I mean, he, he had everything. And he was a poor man. He was just a pastor of a small church and an evangelical chaplain that at Syracuse has zero salary for that position. But it was a life poured out and filled. Now, the Lord may raise him up and give him more years. I don't know. I don't know that to be the case. But here this man says, So this joy of mine has been made full. If you want fullness in your life, here is the secret. Hear this. You pour out your life for Jesus. And you will have fullness in your life. If you don't, you will always feel, why don't I get that? Why does that person get that? Why don't I see that? C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, when you see somebody else receive something, you give them the congratulations. You rejoice in them the same way that you would rejoice had you received it yourself. And it will keep you from jealousy. And I do that. When my colleagues receive some big national award or international award, I right, right away send them a little letter saying, <clears throat> I am so happy for you. Thank you for allowing me to share your joy in this exciting time in your life. You know, just a few words. I want them to know my joy for them. I want to rejoice with them just as I would had I won that award. You do that. It keeps you from jealousy. You pour out your life for Jesus. Your life will be fulfilled. And then... You know, it's a blessed thing. It is a blessed thing to see a life poured out for Jesus. You know, if this man, you know, dies in Illinois, just having gone there to minister, I say, this is perfect, perfect to be able to die in the saddle, to be able to give your life for the Lord in this way. This is a beautiful thing. And this is what John is saying. Don't be jealous for me. I rejoice. I am happy for Jesus. Let me send him a note and tell him I rejoice. In, in, in all the people that are coming to you for baptism, you're doing exactly the right thing. He says, this is the bridegroom. I'm the friend of the bridegroom. I'm going to rejoice with him. This is a life poured out for Christ. You set in your life, remember what I'm telling you, you will have a career. That is fine. But in addition to your career, there's some steps you have to take in order to... to Reach out to other people, to bless other people in a life poured out. It is going to cost you money. In other words, you can't always do what you want to do. There are sacrifices that you will make. I saw the sacrifices that this man made. Very few family vacations. 
Very few things that he had because he always had a house full of people. There were always people in his house eating. I don't know the amount of money that they spent in food over the years, but it must have been hundreds of thousands of dollars. The amount of people that he ministered to. But the good habits that I learned, the habits of prayer that I learned, I learned from him, from Dr. Koshi. The, the, the reaching out to people, reaching out to people, I learned from him. You will see Shireen and I participated in his outreach toward international students. And you will often see Shireen, just the way she targets international students. If someone is from another country in our home, she targets them specifically. You know, and wants to make something for them that makes them feel good, makes them feel at home, makes some dish for them. She does this. We learned this from Dr. Koshi. He poured his life into us. There are other young men and young women like me that this man has poured their lives into and they are all over. They touch more lives. There are people out there that he's touched, that touch more lives than I do. Uh, uh, Joel Rosenberg is one of them. Uh, we were in the same church. Joel Rosenberg, I don't know if you've read some from his, The Last Jihad and all these exciting books. You know, and, and so he went through the same discipleship program that I went through. The same ministry. And this guy is, is, has written, I don't know, like five bestsellers in the past five years. And uh, he says, it, it really beats working. He says, it's really great. You just sit home and play with the kids and you're home all day and you just, you know, write books. And, and it just all these lives. But he travels all over just talking about the Lord. He too is a Messianic Jew. The lives that this man has touched, he travels all around the world ministering. He doesn't stay in hotels. Any country he's in, he can stay with people because he's touched those lives. Those people have come to Syracuse University. He's met them there and they go out, they get saved and, they, and, and this is a life poured out for the Lord. You see how fulfilling it is. It's not like, oh, you know, so many things I didn't accomplish in my life. I didn't do this. I didn't do that. No. It's I poured out my life for the Lord. John is ready. He says, he must increase. I must decrease. Lord, I'm ready. Okay, boom. He was in prison. Not long after that, the head comes off. That's it. Why not? No trouble. Your, your mission in life is fulfilled. Lord, take me home. This is a good thing to have a life poured out for the Lord. In this you are satisfied. Mother Teresa, anyone who worked with her, had to take a vow of poverty. That means that they vowed that they would never take anything. A vow of poverty... A vow of chastity, meaning that they could never marry, and a vow of service to the Lord. Those three vows, a vow of poverty, a vow of chastity, and a vow of service to the Lord, that for the rest of my life, I will serve the Lord. That is a woman who had a life poured out for the Lord. Did she die miserable? No. I mean, she went right up to the end, sharing and going all over and talking about God. She sat in front of Bill Clinton when he was president. She stood in front of Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton and after they had passed these laws that were, that were pro-abortion. And she said, I will take those children. I will take those children. If you think that those children need to be aborted and they, because they have no place to go, I will take them. And she pointed her finger right in the president's face and said, I will take them. You talk about a little woman having such influence Upon people. This is a life poured out. You pour out your life for the Lord. And then and only then. Will you experience fulfillment. Only then will you be able to say. 
my joy has been fulfilled. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the truth of your word. For the demonstrations through John the Baptist. That he didn't have a life that was filled with jealousy. But he rejoiced in the success of others. Father, that he was able to pour out his life for Jesus. And so feel a life fulfilled. Father, I pray for these young people. That they too would be able to have fulfilled lives, fulfilled families, that they would be able to have this because their lives would be poured out for Jesus. Father, I pray that their lives would be poured out for Jesus. And Father, I pray for Dr. Koshi as he's in this critical condition. Lord, I ask you, raise him up. Raise him up. Give him many more years of ministry. Thank you, Lord, for a life poured out for you and for what He has poured into my life and into Shireen's life. Father, thank You for what He and His wife have done in demonstrating their lives for us. Thank You, my Father. Lord, I commit these young people to You. May their lives be poured out for Jesus. In His name we pray. Amen.